Well, what up, Grace? Missed you last weekend. Uh, we still live in West Michigan. So part of my heart was a little bit worried after having such a green Christmas. I mean, it, coming from Seattle, it was like, hey, this feels like home. But then I was like, but where is all the snow? And January is like, here it is. So uh, I was grateful to be able to have a team and the technology to put together the service, pre-record that for you. I had a dude actually text me last weekend at about 1030 and said, hey, open up. If you're live streaming in there, I want to be in there. I was like, well, have a fun drive home, buddy, because we're not there. So, <laughs> uh, But so grateful to be back in person with you all. So great to see you this morning. For those of you who I have not met or had the honor of meeting, my name's Keone, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Grace. Uh, one of my responsibilities and really my joys is to open up God's Word with you guys, with this faith family week in and week out. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been in the Song of Solomon. Uh, the why behind this series in Sacred Garden uh, is really because we've seen an influx of young people, of young marrieds, those who are dating and engaged, looking towards marriage, uh, join our body over the last few years. Actually, about 18 months ago, between uh, September and December, I did 14 weddings in that one season. So there were three weekends during that season where I was doing weddings or rehearsals from Thursday to Saturday, back to back. So we've got a lot of young newlyweds and young engaged couples. Can we just celebrate uh, the fact that God is bringing young people to our church? Just so grateful for that. Um, but in seeing some of these young marriage, we've, we've also ran into uh, just a lot of miscommunication, a lot of understanding and expectations. And so really the Song of Solomon is a book that's more than just uh, about sex. There's actually tons of godly advice and wisdom that we see in this courtship, in this dating, in this affection, in this intimacy within the marital context that we get right here. So we've been going through this book over the last couple of weeks. And, uh, and it's a joy of mine this morning to talk about how we actually should tighten up things in our relationship and in our marriage. Let me explain. We actually have a table uh, that's this big, beautiful table in our family room. Well, I, I should say it used to be uh, beautiful. Uh, that is until like Play-Doh and Sharpie and nail polish got a hold of it. And that was just me. You should see what my kids did to it. Uh, but it's, it's actually really fun to watch your kids jump off of the table onto the couch until you start seeing it wobble more and more. And I can't keep them off of the table because they're kids and they want to jump onto the couch. There's like this big gap and you just, they just run and jump. You can't stop it. I can tell them to stop sitting on it, tell them to get off of it. It doesn't really work. So uh, we've just kind of at this point, you know, it was a Facebook marketplace deal, you know, and so just let that thing go. But I'm really grateful that when it does get wobbly, if you look underneath the table, instead of it just being like directly fastened to it, there's a screw in each of the leg corners where it meets the table and you can tighten it down. And so we get at least another day out of it before I got to tighten it again, right? So the thing is, when you're looking at a table that's wobbly, if things go crazy, it's not really that big of a deal. It's, it's really a coffee table. But there are other things that if you put pressure on them, and their intent is to be stable, when they start to wobble, things can really get out of control, especially when things are traveling. Uh, each of us as individuals are traveling through time. We are moving, we are constantly in motion, and marriages are in motion, they are moving, okay? So if we think of marriage as a vessel that's on the seas, there are times and seasons where we're in harbors, and there are times and seasons where we're in high seas. And if you don't have a tight ship where things are tightened down, things can really get out of control. And so this morning, we're going to be looking back in the Song of Solomon. We're going to be in chapter 2, verses 8 through 17. So if you have a Bible, whether it's a digital or physical copy, 
Go ahead and find Song of Solomon chapter 2, verses 8 through 17, uh, because we're going to get some tips on tightening up our marriage this morning. Um, and just to recap where we were, over the last couple of weeks, we've been kind of seeing this affection and this pursuit that's been happening between this married couple. This is Solomon, and who's known as the Shulamite, really uh, his bride, his first wife. And so we get this interaction, and we've seen this interplay. And last week, we actually talked about how we can rekindle or continue to kindle romance in a marital relationship. And uh, I, got a I got a couple funny texts from some buddies and some emails from some buddies as well saying, I'll never see bird watching the same. Um, so if you're laughing, you actually watched it. If you didn't, sinners. Um, you can go online and watch it. Uh, but the encouragement really was to have a continued uh, getting away. And so th there was opportunity that we saw last week to continue to keep the fire burning and passion burning in your marriage. And this morning, we're going to read through and look at how to actually tighten up things in our marriage. So if you found your place in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 8, I'm going to invite you to stand. Uh, as I read God's word for us this morning. If you're new to grace or it's your first time, maybe first time in person, you've been watching online, we stand out of reverence and respect for the word of God. Uh, Song of Solomon, chapter two, verse eight says this. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind a, our, our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breathes and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on cleft mountains. This is God's word. You may be seated. As you guys take your seats, please bow in a word of prayer with me before we jump into this passage. Father, we come before you this morning so grateful that you've given us your word as a guide. It is inerrant and it is infallible, Lord, as someone who speaks no, speaks no lies. Lord, you have spoken truth to us that we might understand and discern your will for our lives, Jesus. And Jesus, I just pray that this morning you would truly magnify yourself among us, that you would exalt yourself among us. Lord, that those of us who need to be convicted, Lord, that you would bring conviction into our heart, and those of us who need to be comforted, that you would comfort our hearts. Spirit, I pray that you would fill and empower me now in order to speak clearly and truthfully in accordance with your word, for the accomplishment of your will, for the advancement of your kingdom, and for the building up of this body. Lord, would you strengthen marriages. Lord, would you strengthen those who are looking towards marriage? Would you strengthen us, Lord, in our vision of marriage, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we're going to be looking at three tips for tightening up your marriage. Three tips for tightening up your relationship, your marriage, those who are, of you who are engaged and looking toward marriage. Okay, the first one is continue to pursue. This is going to be a theme that runs throughout the entire book, where we see Solomon continuing to pursue his bride. Look at verse 8. She says of him, the voice of my beloved, she hears him coming. 
She says, behold, he comes leaping over the mountains and bounding over the hills. He's like a gazelle. He's like a young stag. So we have to have continued pursuit. Now, here's the thing. There's a couple of different ways that I was looking at this. First of all, when I looked at it, I was laughing uh, because I was looking at how she describes him as a gazelle or as a stag and how he's bounding over mountains and leaping over hills. And I thought, well, considering at least uh, the obesity epidemic that we see in America, just as a, like, maybe as a gentle nudge to some of the fellas in here, all right, maybe we could learn to be a little bit more, um, how should I put this, nimble, right? There's some of the fellas, maybe we need to lose a couple LBs in 2024. I'm just going to gently submit that to you, all right, because I was challenged by that myself, okay? But as I came at this, I thought, okay, she's not clearly talking about uh, his weight and being nimble or his physical stature. What is she talking about? She's talking about his pursuit of her. He's running swiftly, and he's coming to get her, and she knows it, and it's continual all throughout this entire book. Many of the poems in this collection of songs is filled with Solomon's pursuit of his bride, okay? And as we think about his pursuit, we need to be challenged with this fact. The National Library of Medicine actually did a research project. They did a study, and what they found was the number one reason for divorce. The number one reason for divorce, why marriages end up falling apart. I was shocked to know this. It wasn't actually infidelity. It wasn't infidelity. Here's what we see. The statistics actually that we saw are that 75% of spouses decided to call it quits due to lack of commitment. Lack of commitment. Here's what I think some of us have maybe grown up seeing or believed about marriage. That when you're at the altar, when you say, I do and I love you, this is a sentiment I've heard before, where the wives will ask their husbands, do you love me? And the husbands will respond by saying, I told you I loved you at the altar. If anything changes, I'll let you know. That's one way to kill your marriage, dude. If you are not constantly pursuing your bride, the number one tip to tightening up your marriage is to actually pursue your bride. This tells us that the heart of the woman, when she hears that he's coming for her, she delights in it, and he comes swiftly. The point isn't his physical stature again. It's his heart's motivation to actually come swiftly to her. Now, the background and the imagery provided for us throughout this entire passage is that there was a winter season, and now it's a spring season. He's coming through the mountain passes. He's coming over the hills in order to come to get to her. The background imagery is that there were seasons of war during ancient Israelite history. The kings would go out. They would defend along the, what was called the highway of the kings. They would defend against marauders. They would defend against kings and kingdoms trying to take over the land. So the warriors would go out during the season of war, and they would protect, and they would defend. And then they would come back. And when they came back, you could bet your bottom dollar that the honey who was at home was super stoked to see their warrior. Victorious in battle, coming back to pursue her. This is a heart that speaks really to the archetypes that we have within our own hearts ourselves. He is this valiant hero coming home, victorious from battle, and he's seeking and pursuing his wife. Guys, if your wife does not feel your pursuit or hear your pursuit, this is an area you need to tighten up. You need to actually let her know that she is worthy of your pursuit. You actually need to let her know that you're carving out time to consistently be able to spend time with her. She wants to know that, you, that she is wanted and desirable. This speaks to that. That lets our hearts as dudes know that women not, not only want the pursuit, but they want it continually. Here's what I end up seeing in a lot of marriages. The guys during the engagement and the dating process, they pursue really hard. They get to the altar and it's like, well, Job done. Check that box, right? A bag, 
Like, we're good. I went hunting. I, I sought it out. I got my honey. We're good. And then the pursuit falls off. Here's what ends up happening. If you still continue to live like a bachelor when you're married, don't, don't be surprised when she starts to treat you like you're just a bachelor. If you are not showing her that you are continuing to pursue her because you not only won her heart, but you are going to continue to win her heart, don't be surprised when you come home and expect to be treated like a king and you don't get treated like a king. Continual pursuit is what is desired from the woman's heart. She gets excited about it. She says, I hear him coming. He's bounding over the hills. He is exciting and running towards her. All right? And here's the other thing. During this season and during this time, as he comes back, what we actually see is that he, he, we see him approach her and immediately he gets stops in his tracks. Look at what it says. Halfway through verse 9, it says, Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. When I first read this, I was like, okay, the image that I have in my mind isn't really great. It kind of is like a little bit like a peeping Tom. Like, hello, hello. It's like, that's kind of creepy, dude. You know, like, what's going on? He's gazing through the window, looking through the lattice. But here's the thing. The way that the houses were actually constructed, that when he's coming home through his village and he actually gets to his home, he's able to actually see her and catches a glimpse of her. She sees him. And rather than being like this peeping Tom kind of creepy moment, it's actually an incredible moment, a powerful moment of him recognizing her beauty. This warrior's running home. He's got his bags. And all of a sudden, he sees his bride through the window, through through the little courtyard area in front of their house, drops all of his gear and just stands stunned, dumbfounded by the beauty that he's beholding. Guys, if your wife does not sense or feel that you see her as beautiful and worthy, Lord, worthy of her actually seeing that you're stunned by her beauty, that's a problem. Continual pursuit will actually water her heart that brings you and her to a place where you are seeing often and regularly recognizing her beauty. She is worthy of pursuit. Tip number one, if you want to tighten up your marriage, continue to pursue. So he gets there, he's stunned, he's shocked, and all of a sudden, what does he say? He can't help but speak. And she tells us in verse 10, my beloved speaks to me and he says, arise my love, my beautiful one, and come away. He's going to say that twice. Here, in verse 10, and then again in verse 13. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this second tip, but I'm going to reiterate some of the things that were talked about last week. Number two, get away. If you want to tighten up your marriage, get away. We talked about this last week, and here it is again. So maybe there's a dude in here who didn't take action to make sure that they were planning some time or place to get away with their bride. So God wanted to remind you again, get away. What do we see? He says, come away with me. We hear him describe the seasons. Winter's past, the rain is over and gone, flowers appear on the earth. Last week, again, we touched on this vacation, getting away, to have a healthy and thriving marriage, to continue to kindle that. Here, we see it come up again. And, and here's the thing. I think of all people on earth, West Michiganders can understand the change in seasons. Huh? Springtime? Are you kidding me? Joyous? Happy, right? When I first moved here, it's, I mean, we just had a week where we barely cracked double digits, all right? I don't know how I'm not getting an amen already, but here's the thing. When I first moved here from the Seattle area, mild, temperate, right? Doesn't get super, super cold, doesn't get super, super hot. We moved here in 2013 to 2014. It snowed like 97 inches from Thanksgiving Day until May 1st. May 1st! That spring, right? I told Andrea, what are those things like moving around out in front? She goes, those are people, right? 
was like, what? But here's the thing. There are seasons of pursuit, okay? And here's what I want to draw out of this. Rhythms and patterns of pursuit don't always have to be extravagant. They don't always have to be wild excursions and vacations to get away and birdwatch, right? They can be regular rhythms and patterns and practices that you build in. Date nights. They don't have to be extravagant. You know, it, it, it hurt my heart. Actually, one time there was a guy who was like saving up. And as I'm talking with him, they're going through some marital struggles. He like saved up and he made this big extravagant purchase. And it went out and this big thing. But it didn't really speak to the needs of his wife's heart. And so in his mind, he's thinking, great, killed it. And in her heart, she's thinking, uh, maybe not so much. And so here's where things can kind of get a little bit wonky. You have to understand your wife's heart in order to pursue her. And what I would submit to you is that there are some small things that you can do later today, later this week, to begin to simply just pursue her in small ways that are going to bring her to a place where she knows that she's worthy of pursuit. So guys, again, it doesn't have to be these big extravagant, like we're not putting the weight of the world on your shoulders to actually do extravagant over and above things. But are you consistently, like the seasons, regular patterns and rhythms of getting away? Okay, so that's the second way, the second tip that we have to be able to tighten up our marriage. Where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning, though, is actually in verse 15. And the third way that we can tighten up our marriage is by understanding obstacles that try and attack it. And the third tip is that we need to work on catching foxes. Look at verse 15. It says, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Okay, so as we've talked about in this entire book, the word vineyard is utilized to really speak generally about the marital relationship. The word garden is a little bit more intimate, and it usually means sexual interaction or specifically even the body of a woman, as we'll see in a couple weeks. But in this context, when 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 they're talking about catching foxes, what they're talking about is talking about obstacles or, or unwelcome intruders that come into the vineyard and tear it up. So if you think about a fox, you can also think about it as like a rabbit, right? Getting into a garden and eating up all the crops. But the fox was, was at this time what would get into a vineyard and destroy the entire crop. They would dig up the roots. They would eat all the fruit. They would absolutely devastate. And so what we have here, again is the man talking to companions and telling them, let's destroy the foxes before they destroy the vineyards. Foxes are really any obstacle or any threat that can come into your marriage, come into your relationship, and actually seek to destroy it. And the thing about foxes is they're sneaky and they're sly. You don't often see them coming, and they usually ravage. And when you wake up in the morning, you look at the vineyard, it's destroyed. So this is where we have to be very focused and intent on understanding the foxes that can come into our marriage and actually destroy them. So fox number one, I'm going to give you seven foxes that we need to catch before they destroy our vineyard. Fox number one, unspoken and unmet expectations. All right, unmet and uns unspoken expectations. Here's, here's what we need to think about. When we get married, everything is super exciting. We're, we're excited about our mate. We're excited about our future together. But if we have expectations that we haven't spoken to them about the way our daily rhythms and daily life will look like, that can be a big problem that can eat and erode the marriage from within right out the gate. What do I mean? This applies particularly to roles and responsibilities. Roles and responsibilities, right? 
making meals, doing laundry, mowing the lawn, taking care of the kids. These are, these are important conversations that you need to have in marriage. The preference would be that you have them before you get married so that way it doesn't become like gas filling an environment and filling a room that way there was, when there was a misunderstanding that all of a sudden there's like a match that gets sparked and boom, there's a huge explosion. That fox gets in there and starts to tear things up and the next thing you know, your marriage is dying on the vine. That's what's happening, okay? Unspoken and unmet expectations. So I'm not gonna pull any punches with you. I really never do. And I'm just tell you straight up, I'm a traditionalist in my perspective. I'm a traditionalist in my perspective, okay? When we look at Adam and Eve, and we think about some of the at least practical theology that comes out of that relationship. Adam was given the task to work and to keep the garden. Eve was given as a helpmate to help him fulfill that task. I believe the primary calling in the household comes through the husband, okay? This is me, not the Lord, potentially speaking here, okay? But I just, I want to perhaps lay before you some of the practical realities that you'll deal with. While it's not necessarily a biblical standard, I believe it's a practical reality, especially in the younger years of child rearing. Hear me on that. Especially in the younger years of child rearing. It's not necessarily a biblical standard, but this practical reality that every couple has to face. Who will do what and when? And in this practical matter is a principle that's more important than the chores that come along with it. And it's this, that you actually agree, that you speak your expectations, that you're honest with yourself, that you're honest with your spouse, and you tell them, this is what I feel about this. And you actually come to an agreement to actually reach harmony together in conversation. Why? Because the way that you handle that conversation is greater than what you may actually land on. The principle behind coming together to seek harmony in these unmet expectations and unspoken expectations is one way that you can catch this fox and deal with it before it destroys your vineyard. So what? Be clear and be consistent on your expectations. Fox number two. Fox number two. Miscommunication or hurtful communication. We touched on it a little bit with, with unspoken expectations. But communication in marriage can either build it up or it can tear it down. And it's like a fox that can get in. If you're not clear, it can actually destroy. Here's the thing. Assumptions kill. Assumptions kill. You cannot ride on assumptions in marriage. You have to be on the same page and thinking clearly about how you want to actually live out your hopes and your dreams and your future together. So if you're not communicating about your plans day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, your hopes, your dreams, this can actually damage your marriage. If you're not clear about this and communicating this regularly, it can actually destroy your marriage. Uh, I'll be really transparent with you. I'm horrible with communication. And I've had to get way better at it. And thank God for Google Calendar Sync, because it is such a miracle. I can just add Andrea and then I won't get home and then play with the kids and then forget to tell her, right? But this is the thing. If we aren't intentional about creating those in our marriage, that's how the fox can get in. You have a conversation. I don't know if this has ever happened to anybody in here, but you're having a conversation with somebody else next to your spouse and you tell them a bunch of stuff. And the meanwhile, your spouse is looking at you and you can feel their eyeballs like laser beams staring through your brain, right? And you look over at them and you're like, oh, I didn't tell you any of this stuff, right? This is a little fox that can get in there. And so you need to get on the same page and be clear. Here's the thing, where assumption kills, clarity is kindness. Clarity is kindness. 
So you need to communicate and you need to be clear. And we're going to talk a little bit more later about specifically the marital bedroom and some of the clarity that needs to be had there as well. So we'll get to some of those issues a little bit later, all right? Um, Other than like birthday surprises, our spouses should be the first to know about announcements and plans and hopes and dreams and all of that, okay? So don't drop the ball on that stuff. Here's the other thing. Hurtful communication. Hurtful It's either miscommunication, non-communication, but hurtful communication is another fox that can creep in in this communication line. And this can actually ravage and destroy. It has such an insidious way of being able to actually bury itself under the surface and destroy all of the root system of an entire vineyard, okay? We all know this phrase, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? What a load of trash. What a load of trash. Uh, I don't know about you, but I can still remember specific things that people said to me in like fifth grade, right? Words have a way of burying themselves in your heart and trying to redefine who it is that God says you are, okay? And the, wor- the worst one is when a spouse who's the closest to us, the most intimate to us, actually speaks hurtful words that seek to redefine who we are as, as children of God. And that can linger and it can last and it can bury itself in our hearts and in our minds. It can begin to eat us up and destroy us. This is, this is what Proverbs 18.21 says. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So you're either going to eat great fruit or terrible fruit. It's either going to be sweet fruit or bitter fruit. But it's dependent upon how you actually use your tongue. Are you going to build up or are you going to tear down? Hurtful communication can absolutely ravage and destroy marriages. There's an interesting statistic. Actually, it's, a, it's actually a ratio that I came across uh, when I was studying about this. Um, it's five to one. Five to one is the ratio. There was a study that was done. What the study ended up finding out was that for every one negative comment that any boss or employer or any friend, friendship, spouse spoke, parent, child, in any relationship, for every one negative comment that was spoken, it took five positive comments just to scrub clean that one negative comment. So so just imagine then in a household where there's very little praise, where there's never an attaboy or an attagirl, where there's never an affectionate praising of a spouse, but there are plenty of negative comments. Imagine then if if that one negative comment, right, were, were like a pebble that was sitting in the back of a dump truck. One pebble might not seem like a lot. But if over and over and over, you continue to put pebble after pebble after pebble after pebble, pretty soon... The back of that dump truck is going to be filled with the weight of stone after stone after stone until eventually that dump truck just gives way and everything comes falling out. That's when you see these massive implosions happen. This fox, again, is particularly insidious. Critical spirits that demean and degrade and tear down a partner will destroy your marriage. It's not godly. And it is not something that we see ever in this book. In the Song of Solomon, we see the affection and the praise, both of wife to husband and husband to wife. Some of you have so much work to do in unburying all of the negative comments. You may spend the rest of your marriage trying to reach that five to one ratio. 
you may actually spend the rest of your marriage trying to reach that five to one ratio. Decade after decade of negative comment, jab, 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 tear down, tear down, tear down, hardly any price. Hurtful communication can destroy a marriage from the inside out. And here's, here's what's insidious about it. Nobody else will see that. Nobody else sees it. You go home, again, to a home and a household where it's like walking on eggshells. The home environment is filled. It's fueled with gas. And all it takes is these little sparks. Boom, boom, boom. Blow up after blow up. These are the rhythms and patterns that happen in the hearts of those who only speak negatively and who give hardly any praise. There's a difference, there's a difference between pointing out areas and attitudes that need correction and being critical in spirit and demeaning and degrading your spouse or your children. This kind of a household is not God-honoring. This is a fox that can get in and absolutely tear apart. Throughout this book, we see the wife being praised for her beauty. And what's amazing to think about is we're not given, other than poetic language, a physical image of what she actually looks like. We're not given a physical image. We're given a description of the husband continually praising. This fox can get in. And this is actually a fox that we may actually open the gate and let it in. Fox number three, I would say the misuse of media, but it can also be the abuse of media. All right, entertainment is great, but overuse, misuse, or abuse of entertainment is bad. On that note, go Lions! <laughs> can I get an amen? All right. Uh, yeah, Seahawks are out. Um, rip. But super stoked for the Lions, dude. MCDC, let's go all the way. Look it up. All right. Um, so here's the thing. Some of the young dudes in here, I'm going to call you out on this one. Uh, video games, if they are habitually a place where you found identity and reward in your life, they will kill your marriage as fast as looking at porn will. Video games can have the same effect and result because of the lack of the attention, pursuit, and affection you give to your bride. Unless there's, there's a mutual hobby that's enjoyed, right, by all in your marriage, you may need to readjust your priorities. Here's the other thing. It may not be gaming. It might be Netflix and chill, right? Netflix and chill in a marriage, great, right? But if that's all you do in order to connect is watch movies together. Misuse of media and misuse of entertainment. Don't let the entertainment, don't let Netflix be a crutch for your marriage. You have to tune out that stuff, otherwise that fox can get in and tear things up. And this, this fox, again, is like a weed that just keeps choking everything out in your life. And it can go underground and like a labyrinth, it can finally show its ugly head and just destroy. Again, pornography, whether it's digital, physical, infidelity, unfaithfulness, that kills. These are, these are foxes that come in the vineyard and destroy the vineyard that God has blessed us with in marriage. This is a modern reality of how deep and pervasive, again, this fox has damaged marriages and it's uprooted and it's ruined many, many vineyards. 
This is breaking the covenant, and it stems from a heart that's filled with idolatry. Here's what 2 Timothy 2.22 says to us. It says, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Flee from it. In any entertainment that is getting in your way and, and messing up your vineyard, get away from it. You can combat this, Fox, by getting accountable with other people in your life. Uh, getting accountable through software and potentially just getting rid of a device. Whether it's a mobile device or a computer laptop. Getting rid of access until you're able to once again regain self-control and to enjoy entertainment in a way that actually God will allow for and condone. Speaking of accountability, this brings up the fourth fox. Fox number four is isolation. This fox will kill a marriage as well. Here's the thing. You need community to thrive. In Scripture, we're called members of the same body, right? Whether it's an arm or a leg, we're, we're talking about the members of a body. And there are marriages that get isolated from the church and from their faith community for whatever reason, right? But, but the encouragement would be to come back into the fold, come back into community, whether it's through life group or perhaps even just joining a DNA group, joining women's Bible study, come back into community to, to not only know others, but to be known as well, to be in community. Uh, Hebrews 10.25 says that we are to not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. And I love the way this translation puts it. It says, we should not stop gathering together with other believers as some of you are doing, right? One of the unfortunate realities of church life after COVID is much more a la carte kind of church where people will just watch online and be like, yep, done. Because Jesus was incarnational, meaning he came from heaven to earth, took on flesh. He modeled for us what our experience in church life should be like. Think about it. Could Jesus not have just saved us from heaven? He could have decreed, found a way, shot an, an arrow of love towards earth and be like, hey, I love you, but I'm not coming into your mess. No, he didn't do that. He incarnationally came and he lived among us, dwelt among us. He gave us an example and a pattern of what our lives in faith community should look like incarnational, together, okay? And, and isolation will actually destroy your marriage. If you are not connected into a faith body for, for encouragement and support, if you're not actually in a space where you are known, you will atrophy spiritually. Fellowship is what we actually see attested to and testified of in one of the first things that the early church did. They came together. It says they devoted themselves to the teachings of the, of the apostles. They shared everything in common and they broke bread together. That phrase, break bread together, that is community. It is sharing life together. It is living life on life. It is not easy. It is a sacrifice just like tithing. It is a discipline just like tithing. Do not get isolated. This is a fox that can get into your vineyard and tear you up. I have watched too many couples deconstruct because they have become isolated from their faith community. And they encourage one another in the wrong direction, away from biblical truth and biblical community. So what, what's the call then for us? The call is to actually be in community together, to be obedient to Scripture, to meet together regularly, often, to be in community and environment. Fox number five. Fox number five. This is what I'm actually calling roommate syndrome. It's something that I've seen and I've witnessed, and I was like, I've never really heard of what's going on before. Um, Song of Solomon 
1.4 says, the king has brought me to his chamber. Uh, it might just be assumed that like once you get married, uh, you like sleep together like all night. <laughs> but it's not. There's actually a new practice that's coming out. I don't know how new it is, but uh, one thing that I've uh, read and studied about, it's actually called sleep divorce, where couples are actually sleeping separate beds, separate rooms. This is common, apparently. More common than I ever would imagine, not only in secular circles, but even in church circles. So here's the thing. A 2014 study showed that 86% of couples who slept less than one inch apart reported higher levels of satisfaction in their marriages than those who slept 30 inches apart or more. Now, one inch apart is very close, all right? And I don't know how many of you are married to a heater, right? But if you're sleeping one inch together, I'm surprised your sheets aren't melting. You know what I mean? So... That being said, I think the point of the study was to show those who actually sleep together in the same bed throughout the night, they have higher levels of satisfaction, 86% higher, okay? Um, I think it's interesting that the world is actually encouraging it. I found article after article after article that's talking about the positive benefits of sleep divorce. And I'm like, as a, as a biblical like, Christian, hearing that discourages me because it has the word divorce in it, right? Ding, 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 Christian, right? Think about this. I found many articles in the secular world, couldn't find one from a biblical worldview written by a Christian talking about the positive benefits of it outside of medical conditions or outlying circumstances. The general practice should be not being roommates, but actually living together. I've counseled many couples where, where we found out we're not doing well, we're not doing well. 11 years, we've been living in separate rooms, and I'm like, you're lucky if you guys high five. Forget even practicing any of what we're going to see in Song of Solomon. You know what I mean? You have to actually be not just in a home together, but be together. The, the danger would be that your nights are spent apart and your days are spent apart. Why wouldn't every other part of your life just be spent apart? You become roommates, two ships passing in the night. Um, I don't, it's not just me who feels this way. Dr. Greg Smalley of Focus on the Family he also read the same exact study, and he actually encourages couples to sleep together rather than apart. It might seem like a no-brainer for some of us, but the encouragement would be to actually reconsider the practices and the habits and patterns in our own marriage. So, Fox number five, don't, don't just be roommates, right? Actually be a married couple. Live together, sleep together in your covenant. Fox number six, poor money management. Money is one of the leading causes of divorce in marriage through mismanagement. It doesn't mean if you're bad with money or you don't make a ton of money that you're doomed. Right? That's not what that means. It means that properly stewarding your resources that God has given you in, in, in a way that protects your marriage from damage and unnecessary harm. It's talking about stewardship. We are strong advocates of money management systems through financial training. We offer classes here at Grace, actually, through the Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University. And if you are struggling in finances in your marriage, please consider signing up to take one of those classes. Don't hide in shame. And again, isolate in shame. Don't let this fox destroy your marriage. Come in and help us. Let, let us help you kill this fox together. That sounds pretty fun, actually. So here's the thing. Ecclesiastes 7.12 says this. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Solomon wrote this as well. 
He's talking about money being a shelter. Money provides a refuge and a protection from the harsh circumstances of life. Ultimately, our hope comes from Jesus, but there is wisdom laid up in store for us in Scripture of how to properly steward and manage our money. So, poor money management. Don't let that be a fox that destroys your vineyard. Fox number seven. Fox number seven. This one is, this is one that I think in, in a highly religious context, like we are in right now, actually speaks to the heart of, of what much of us might actually struggle with. The, the seventh fox is actually self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Here's what I see happening often in marriages is that one or both in a marriage will make themselves the standard of righteousness. Where, where if it's both, then, then any other marriage that they encounter is going to feel condemnation or shame because they're doing it so right and the other person's doing it so wrong. That's called self-righteousness. How self-righteousness works in an individual marriage is that one spouse right, stands in righteousness and judgment over the other, that they become the arbiter of what is righteous and good, and the other does not. And it goes back and forth. And, and this is how it works. If you are performing well, then we have a good quality of marriage. You, you live the way you want, then I'm not happy. But when you live the way that I want, then I'm happy. So, so what ends up happening in these marriages is these marriages can then be considered good if what? If we stay out of debt, if we don't get drunk, if we attend church together, if we tie the right amount, if we don't scream too much or yell too much, then that's good enough. And then we can, in, in our own self-righteousness, show up at church and feel good about coming to church. That's how self-righteousness works in marriage. So then because I have a good marriage, God is then happy with me, and therefore I can be happy in marriage because God is happy with my performance and because I'm happy with my spouse's performance. As long as it's nothing too bad, like actual adultery or anything like that, as long as it's not too bad, then we're doing pretty good, better than the next couple. We feel good about God loving us, and so we're good. But here's the problem with that. We're sinners, and we are not the standard of righteousness. Jesus is. If marriage is supposed to be a reflection of the goodness of Christ towards his bride, then even in our marriage covenants, we should also see that our standard of righteousness should be Jesus alone. Because if it's not, here's what happens. We can begin to judge our spouse off of what they should do for me. But if that's how Christ thought about us, he never would have come for us. That is not the gospel that we believe in or cling to. It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel says, you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. And when two sinners get together, it's not just imperfect people. It's people who have sinned against an, a holy God in their unrighteousness. We injure each other. We hurt each other. And at the foot of the cross, we all stand under judgment. And if we have self-righteousness in our marriage, this, is, this will kill the vineyard. Who hasn't broken the law? Who hasn't sinned against God? You are making yourself a standard when, when only Christ himself is the standard of righteousness. If you can say you haven't sinned against God, 
then you are making yourself like God himself. If you haven't failed to uphold the law in any place, then you are making yourself like God himself. As soon as you make your own happiness or satisfaction in the marriage, and that is the standard of goodness in marriage, you're not talking about reflection of the gospel any longer. You're talking about reflection of your own holiness, not God's. When we see ourselves as those who are unworthy before a holy God, who stand rightfully condemned before him, we actually receive the gospel message that tells us you are not good enough and you have fallen short. It's only then that we can look at our spouse and actually extend forgiveness for whatever has come. Some of us need the hope of Christ Jesus this morning because even as I went through fox after fox after fox, some of you were sitting here and thinking, I've let every single fox in my vineyard. And here's the most amazing part. This poem ends with this in verse 16. It says, my beloved is mine and I am his. And he grazes among the lilies. The phrase grazes among the lilies is talking about their union, their unity. But this ownership and mutual possession of one another with belonging, this is actually a reference not only to their immediate marriage, but, but something that goes beyond this. And it's talking about God's covenant love with his people. How do I know that? Because this same exact phrase is actually used by Jeremiah 32, by Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32, 28. Here's what he says. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. So if, you, if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, I've totally blown it. I've let every single one of the foxes in. My vineyard's a wreck and it's destroyed. Then what you need to hear this morning isn't condemnation. You need to hear the gospel because God speaks to his own people after they had turned away from him and broken their covenant on him and they had walked away from him and he allowed destruction to come over them because of the consequences of their sin. But in the middle of their desolation, after having locust swarms eat up all of their crop, here's what God says to his people that we need to hear ourselves this morning. In Joel 2, 25 through 27, he says, So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. He says, You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. Grace, when we're thinking about tightening up our marriage, it's not something any of us can do on our own. We need Jesus to heal and to fix brokenness in our own lives and in married lives together. It is something that only Jesus himself can do. And this is why we come and worship. This is why we cry out to him. This is why we offer everything to him because we ourselves know we are broken sinners and without him, we are without hope in this life. God doesn't shame his beloved. God can restore his beloved. All God asks for is that we would humble ourselves as his beloved. I'll tell you a story really quickly. I'm not standing up here today because I've got it all figured out and all got it, got it all together. I'm standing up here today because I know I'm a sinner and I cannot believe that Jesus would die for me. I cannot believe it. 
In my first year of marriage, some of you have heard this before, but in our first year of marriage, Andrea and I had a terrible relationship. My fault. Because of foxes that had come into the vineyard, foxes I'd let into the vineyard, me being dumb and not wise, being a sinner. And I remember at our first year anniversary, we're sitting at the steakhouse and her whole countenance and demeanor is turned away from me. And I remember asking her, hey, listen, I know that I believe the gospel, but right now, I just feel like our marriage is dead. And she looks at me and she says, yep. So I said, would you allow me to just pray for our marriage? She said, okay. So I reach my hand across the table and she reaches her hand across the table and we're holding hands across the table from one another. And all I said was, Lord, our marriage is dying. It just feels dead. And, and I, I prayed and I said, Lord, with the same power that you raised your son from the dead, would you resurrect this marriage? And I can't tell you exactly what it was, but I can tell you with 100% integrity that the next day, Andrew and I both knew that something had changed. Something in the heavenly realities and the spiritual realm had broken. And it didn't just change overnight. We didn't just fix it overnight. We met with counselors and we got encouragement. But I can tell you today that I don't stand here because I got it all figured out. How I protected my marriage from all the foxes that could come in a vineyard. No. I stand here and I would plead with you to recognize all of these foxes and what they can do in a marriage. But to also hold on to hope. Because I've seen Jesus transform what looks broken and what looks dead. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your love. We've not earned it. We've not deserved it. There's no good that we have to offer. And yet you came in order that you would give us new life. Lord, there are many of us who through the wisdom of your word, great examples before us, have been able to see those foxes in advance and to make proper arrangements in order that they would not destroy our marriages. Lord, we thank you for that wisdom. We thank you for that guidance. We thank you for your love in giving that to us, but for others of us, Lord, who feel the weight of looking at a desolate marriage that's a vineyard that's been stripped of the fruit. Lord, whether it's through our own sinful patterns and behaviors and letting foxes in, or it's because of life circumstances that has just come in and destroyed, Lord, we pray that you would resurrect marriages. Lord, we pray that you would restore marriages and rebuild marriages. Lord, they are an image of the gospel. And as a gospel-believing church, Jesus, we believe that by the power of your spirit, you are able to accomplish this. And so we pray for this in the mighty name of Jesus. And we all said...